Uh, hi, Sebastian. How are you doing? Uh, good, Noto. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, for the listeners of Foreign Policy Talks podcast, um, I'm here with Sebastian. And thank you so much for being the loyal listeners of Foreign Policy Talks podcast. So Sebastian's telling you, right? It's a, it's a, it's a Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat and also the author of so many amazing books. And one of them is the In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia and the Chinese Century. Uh, of course, it talk about the, the Southeast Asian relation with China. And of course, it, it relates to the, relate, to the relationship or engagement with the United States, something that we're going to talk about today. So, Sebastian, it's good to talking to you. And uh, let me start by asking you this. Um, of course, we know that there are a lot of consequences of COVID pandemic. Uh, that they bring to the geopolitical constellation or warfare between the U.S. and China, and also mm-hmm. to the Chinese rising influence in the world, including to Southeast Asia. In your view, Sebastian, uh, will the COVID pandemic uh, bring any changes to the Southeast Asia-China relationship in, in your view? I don't think it's going to change anything significantly. What I think it's going to be going to do is, is reinforce pre-existing trends. I think what the at least so far, what the COVID pandemic has, has done uh, in terms of China's relationship with Southeast Asia is to, under, uh, to reinforce the, you know, the, the, the fact of geographic proximity and the concomitant economic entanglements that have grown up as a result of that proximity. So, you know, as you know, uh, China is a, you know, a central economic partner, if not the most important economic partner uh, to most of the nations in Southeast Asia. And and I think what we're seeing with the, the COVID pandemic is, is you know, that, that reality being reinforced. Um, I think most Southeast Asian governments recognize that, you know, China's economic recovery is important for Southeast Asia. The economic ties that they have to China are more important than ever in, in helping Southeast Asia and Southeast Asian nations with their own recovery from the pandemic and the economic effects of the pandemic. Um, you know, that said, I, I think that Chinese vaccine diplomacy in Southeast Asia is, you probably had a limited effect. I think in cases where, you know, nations are concerned about Chinese behavior, such as in the South China Sea, you know, these gifts of vaccines, while very welcome, um, and actually I should note that most of the vaccines that have gone to Southeast Asia have been sold, not donated. Um, you know, while these are welcome and Southeast Asian nations are trying to get their hands on as many vaccines as they can from anywhere, um, you know, this will not, um, you know, neutralize the fears and concerns that most Southeast Asian governments have about what China's rise will mean for the future of the region. Um, I tend to think that Southeast Asian views of, of China are relatively inelastic. Um, they're rooted in the reality of proximity, as I mentioned, and the, you know, the fact that the two regions are economically interdependent to a large extent now. Um, and that, you know, the gifts of vaccines are not going to shift, um, you know, fundamental views of China significantly. Right. Um, Sebastian, you know, some scholars argue that uh, China is playing economic statecraft, right? They, they have, um, uh, you know, China, foreign policy objective behind this uh, engagement with the Southeast Asian states. But in some ways, uh, do you agree that China has been successful in portraying itself as a protagonist partner for Southeast Asian state? Do you see any cautiousness felt by any Southeast Asian leaders so far? 
especially to the Chinese rising influence in the region? Well, there's certainly a concern. I think that um, China's reappearance as a great power, um, you know, uh, after a century and a half, has uh, reawakened um, memories in the region about uh, China's past actions. You know, I'm talking specifically about its support of communism um, in the 1960s and 70s, um, and you know, even going back further than that. Um, the Chinese state's policies toward the ethnic Chinese diaspora communities of the region and, and this the sort of fear that, um, or the, the half-buried fear that you see in many countries, particularly in Indonesia, that ethnic Chinese that live in Southeast Asia are somehow eternally loyal to, to you know, their homeland. Um, so there's all of these concerns have, re, have reawakened as China's power has grown over the past couple of decades. I think that a lot of, you know, Southeast Asian governments have, you know, um, have expressed, you know, their economic, um, their trade and investment with China has proceeded alongside a growing um, anxiety about, uh, you know, uh, China's increasing maritime assertiveness for those countries that have disputed claims in the South China Sea. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's increasing um, ambition on the global stage. Um, uh, and I think that, I mean, we've seen Southeast Asian governments respond to this in a variety of ways, but the basic meridian has been one of balance of, you know, engaging with China, deriving as much benefit as possible from their relationships with China, while also forging fruitful relationships with other external powers. That includes the United States, of course, but it's by far, it's far from a simple binary situation. You also have countries like Japan, which is incredibly active, particularly in the infrastructure space in Southeast Asia, and then other partners, Australia, South Korea, even Taiwan, India, um, uh, Russia, all of these other powers provide alternatives. And so what I think, you know, the main strategy we've seen from Southeast Asian governments is diversification of foreign relations, security relations, uh, economic relations. Um, and, um, you know, each nation has ma managed this balance in slightly different ways, of course. Um, mm. The situation for a country like Vietnam is very different um, than for a country like Myanmar, for instance. And, you know, and, and, in, and then again, a country like Indonesia. Um, but I do think there's, there's been a similar sort of uh, desire for Southeast Asian governments to benefit from a relationship with China, um, while also um, seeking a strategic counterweight in the region um, or a series of strategic counterweights that can, can sort of maintain a, you know, a certain degree of stability. There's really the stability upon which Southeast Asia's prosperity and economic development has long relied. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm interested to follow up uh, on what you have said about the differences in balancing the, the, the relationship with China and also with the United States. Do you have any suggestion on which country do you think can address the impact of such rivalry very well? Um, you know, and maybe a country that can preserve a degree of political strategic policy autonomy, but in some ways also can leverage the immense opportunities with the relationship with these major powers. I think the Singaporeans have done quite well at sort of articulating a very clear strategic vision and following through on it. I mean, part of that has to do with the stability that exists, uh, strategic stability that exists due to the People's Action Party remaining, you know, more or less in power in a more or less unbroken mm -hmm. um, span since the country's, well, a totally unbroken span since the country's independence. Um, 
and so you know and, and singapore being very wealthy you know having a very you know um also being very you know a very contained territory has enabled it to you know position itself um between the us and china in a, i think a, quite a sophisticated way um Singapore has been described as the one nation in the world that can claim a special relationship with both the United States and China. And, you know, we've really seen from Singapore as of late, particularly the prime minister, uh, you know, um, a very clearly articulated view on the, from a Singaporean perspective, self-defeating nature of the US-China competition. Um, the Singaporeans have had strong words for both the Chinese and the Americans about this escalating rivalry that, that you know, the two superpowers are engaged in now, um, you know, and, and I think is, you know, offered probably, you know, the, the most coherent Southeast Asian sort of distillation of, um, of, of a regional view of US-China competition. Um, and uh, so I'd say that Singapore has probably, you know, uh, handled this with the most aplomb so far I think the Vietnamese also have a, you know, a, a fairly sophisticated strategic approach toward, um, you know, increasing U.S.-China competition. Of course, Vietnam is in the unusual position of being, you know, uh, you know, being in such close geographic and cultural and political proximity to China, um, given the, you know, entangled relationships of the two countries' ruling communist parties, the long history of resistance to Chinese. Um, power, but also the borrowing from Chinese cultural, social, political, military um, traditions, which has, you know, um, enabled Vietnam in some ways, in, in many ways, to succeed in um, maintaining its independence from China. Um, you know, the Vietnamese have have been able to, you know, deal with China in a fairly sophisticated way. There's, you know, serious nationalistic um, uh, points of tension in the South China Sea. Um, the, the Vietnamese government faces in, you know, um, a huge degree of anti-Chinese hostility on the part of the Vietnamese public, but has been able to maintain an economically fruitful relationship with, with Beijing, you know, through, despite all of those tensions. Um, and, uh, but ultimately, I think, you know, a lot of this is going to, a lot of the decisions that affect this situation in Southeast Asia will, will be made in foreign capitals, in either Washington or Beijing. I mean, uh, you know, if, if these two nations move towards something bordering on open conflict, it's not going to be possible for Southeast Asian nations to sort of maintain that balance. Um, so, you know, they, they are they are operating within increasingly constrained parameters. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not a simple bipolar region. There are other powers in the region which increase Southeast Asian nations room for maneuver. You know, they have other, um, you know, options. Um, uh, it's not simply a, a matter of the US or China. But, you know, as, as tensions build in these two countries, move further toward um, still the still distant prospect of conflict, um, those, the range of options will, will begin to narrow. And I think that that's the concern for the region in the sort of decade to come. Right, interesting. Um, let's move to the Washington side. And I'm interested to ask you about the US movement in, in responding China's assertiveness in the, in the region, right? Uh, we know that under Trump's presidency that uh, Washington has been very passive, right? Less interest and less interaction to the Southeast Asian states compared to China. Mm. Do you have any real examples when Washington is able to navigate the ASEAN states to move away from China's influence? Any policies, any instruments that they use? Well, I mean, I think one of the problems in U.S. policy is that Southeast Asia policy has been 
is set downstream of its China policy. So, as, you know, when the Trump administration initiated this very sharp turn against China in 2017, um, which, which has become really the bipartisan consensus in Washington now, that China is a systemic rival and the two nations are, or the, you know, the two powers are engaged in great power competition. Um, you know, Southeast Asia was seen through the lens of this sort of burgeoning rivalry with China. So American engagement has tended to focus more on security and defense it's focused on the things that matter to America rather than the things that matter to Southeast Asian countries. One of the most interesting things in the ECS, Yusuf Ishak Institute's um, uh, surveys that were conducted in, uh, last year and released early this year was, you know, the, the fact that most Southeast Asian respondents, and this of course included opinion makers, policy makers, journalists, um, you know, people working in the nonprofit sector, you know, on the whole, you know, the, the things that were of concern to Southeast Asian you know, uh, opinion makers and policymakers were uh, things like the impact of COVID-19, both the public health impact and the economic impact, um, uh, economic development more broadly, employment, uh, these sorts of more, you know, I wouldn't say mundane, but these more domestic issues. Um, whereas the United States perceives China uh, or its rivalry with China as, uh, you know, part of a global, you know, um, ideological showdown. This is how it's being depicted in Washington um, in many quarters. Um, and I think that the Southeast Asian governments simply don't view things quite that way. Um, they, they can work with China. They've done it for many years. They see a lot of economic benefits from working with China. They might even sympathize with some of China's views about how the international, um, uh, how, how the globe and global politics should be ordered. Um, China's focus on sovereignty, it's, its forms of no strings attached, um, infrastructure funding and so forth and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the U.S. recently has, has, I think, its policies has begun to reflect an awareness that it needs to be, you know, engaging with Southeast Asia in a way that's relevant to Southeast Asia. Um, and that, you know, there is a sort of limited uh, you know, Southeast Asian receptiveness to this, this very um, strident anti-China message, um, you know, and um, we've begun to see that with the increasing vaccine outreach of the United States, which has now offered something in the, in the range of 24 million doses of vaccine to Southeast Asian countries with, I would, you know, I would presume many more to come in the year, you know, in, in the next year. Um, and potentially, you know, the signing of a digital trade agreement, there's been some talk about that might be on the horizon. I think a, a return to the TPP is probably unlikely at this stage due to domestic politics. But, you know, I think there is an awareness in Washington that there needs to be, you know, it needs to have a positive agenda for Southeast Asia. But I think, you know, that contrasts with the fact, you know, um, Kamala Harris is, is touching down in Singapore today. Mm -hmm. First, uh, uh, you know, the vice president, she'll be um, also paying a, a visit to Vietnam. And, you know, her visit is about communicating this idea that America is back or, right. you know, that it's here to stay in the region. It's got permanent interests here. The very fact that the U.S. has to make, you know, uh, send such a message to Southeast Asia is a symbol of the fact that, you know, um, there have been a lot of doubts about its staying power. And if you contrast that with China, China is a, it, it, no one's asking any questions about China's permanent interests in the region or whether China has is, is, is got a strong interest. It's very clear that it does. Proximity ensures that. And I think this is the message that the Chinese Chinese diplomats have been trying to underline in recent months. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the, the China is sort of this eternal partner of Southeast Asia that, you know, the two regions destinies are intertwined 
and that um, China will be there every step of the way. Um, and I think the United States is sort of the opposite problem. It's very far away. It's got, you know, as a global hegemon, it has global responsibilities and global engagements. Um, even if the withdrawal from Afghanistan frees up some of that um, strategic uh, attention span. Um, I do think that, you know, the US, Southeast Asia is one region of many, whereas for China, you know, which is still engaged overwhelmingly in its own neighborhood, um, right. you know, it's got a lot more resources that it can, uh, it can invest in Southeast Asia, both financially, diplomatically, uh, politically, and so forth. We remain one of the most strategic region, right, for China. And of course. We are all yeah. waiting for Harris uh, results of the visit and uh, and yeah let's see what uh, what's he can over to the region mm. yes as, um, you know Sebastian as an Indonesian I'm curious to know uh, your thoughts on Indonesia's stance towards China uh, some scholars argue that the government have been very cautious and careful in pushing a closer engagement with China we know some domestic factors contributing to it right from mm. the entry of Chinese workers the issue of death trap the, the and the issue of communism but some scholars argue that now, especially under Jokowi's administration, our relationship is in, you know, in the highest degree. We are, we are very close. And even the, you know, the theory of hedging stances of Indonesia is even in doubt, right? Because we are very close to China, facts in, on economic relationship, on trading partnership. So how do you see the relationship will move forward in the near future? Do you, do you agree with the, with the scholars that think that we are now still playing very well uh, in balancing the relationship? Or do you agree that we are now moving closer to China? Well, I think that's certainly the case that Jokowi has focused on his relationship with China um, through the lens of his domestic agenda, which is, as you know, about um, generating economic growth, building out uh, Indonesia's infrastructure, especially in, in more remote parts of the archipelago. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, seen in President Xi Jinping, you know, a like-minded figure, a sort of a, you know, somebody who can get things done. Um, and so he's been very enthusiastic about the Belt and Road and, and about trying to harness that to Indonesia's benefit. Um, you know, of course, you know, and so I think that we have seen, uh, you know, uh, Indonesia and China relations improve over the course of Jokowi's seven years in power. Uh, and, and they'll probably continue to do so. But I think it's important to recognize the, you know, the limitations that exist in Indonesia. Um, you know, as you, as you suggested, there is, you know, Indonesia's probably, you know, of all the countries in Southeast Asia, you know, probably has um, one of the most fraught relationships with China. And, and, and overwhelmingly, this has to do with the perception of Indonesia's uh, ethnic Chinese minority and, and its relationship with China. And this has historically been the sort of vector for suspicion of China as a whole. Um, and so, you know, we've seen, you know, the, the, the election in 2019 saw, you know, an eruption of anti-Chinese uh, disinformation and fake news, social media rumor. Um, it can be, you know, guaranteed that, um, unless Jokowi changes the constitution and is able to run for a third term in office, um, you know, that there will be a change of government at some point. And, and you know, th this sort of friendliness, this openness to Chinese investment and, um, you know, Chinese infrastructure money, you know, will probably reverse itself. There are, there are tendencies in Indonesian politics that view China with a huge amount of suspicion. Um, uh, and, and as I su suggested, that's often aligned with suspicion toward 
the ethnic Chinese minority in, in Indonesia as well. So, you know, I think that there, um, there is likely to be, you know, um, you know, tension on the horizon in the relationship. I don't think that tension's gone away. I think that Jokowi has been able to put it to one side, but, you know, it has been a, a political vulnerability of him as well. Um, and so, you know, on the whole, I think that Indonesia's managed to balance fairly well. I mean, you know, Jokowi recognizes the importance of Indonesia as an economic partner. And I think that any Indonesian president who is concerned about their domestic popularity would see that as probably an important relationship to maintain. The question is exactly how, you know, how, how, how they can balance that with, you know, with, you know, the, if they're applying a, an anti-China line in order to, you know, um, to sort of tap into that nativist, um, uh, that core of nativism that exists in Indonesia, whether, you know, that, that could be balanced with, uh, or how to balance that with the need for your fruitful economic relationship. But I think there's always going to be that, that, that sort of degree of tension in the relationship. I mean, I, I don't think Indonesia and China are ever going to have a, you know, a sort of special relationship um, uh, in the same way that, say, you know, the Cambodian government does. I think there's always going to be that, that an adherence to, you know, bebas aktif, you know, the, the, the free and independent um, foreign policy. There's always going to be a sense of, of wanting to hedge uh, its bets. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I would say on the whole that the government has, has succeeded fairly well in, in maintaining that balance. Um, um, but as I suggested earlier, this is going to become more complicated as, as time goes by and, uh, and tensions between the, between the United States and China continue to increase. Right. As I agree with you that it's going to be more complicated, right, in the near future. And even like the term or the concept of free and active foreign policies has been very debatable in, in the country. <laughs> right, as it was, of course, during the, the Suharto period when Indonesia was very, you know, closely aligned with the anti-communist bloc. So, you know, uh, right. it, it's, it has been, you know, creatively interpreted over the years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, my last question, Sebastian, I know you're very busy, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to, to raise this question to you. Um, you know that the huge debate on China and Southeast Asian politics has been discussed, right, uh, by, by scholars, by practitioners in the region. Has there been any influence of China in Southeast Asia's democracies today, in your view? You mean a negative influence of China on, on the quality of democracy in Southeast Asia? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely been effects. You know, you see China pioneering forms of internet control, um, which repressive governments in the region have, you know, uh, you know, are, are learning from, um, you know, I, so I think there's certainly been sort of a, a sense in which this is true in a technical sense, you know, um, mm. the techniques of repression um, that China's pioneering can be picked up and used by, you know, repressive governments. My view on this tends to be that, you know, the, the quality of democracy in, in, in a, given country, you know, overwhelmingly reflects domestic conditions. Um, outside powers have an influence on that, um, I, you know, but I think that, you know, if we are witnessing sort of a, which I think we are, sort of a broad decline or retreat of liberal values in Southeast Asia, I think that says a lot more about the realities within Southeast Asian countries. I think it says something about economic inequality in a lot of these countries and how that is ballooned out of control in many places. Um, it says something about the you know, um, the fact that, well, you know, these countries have very, in, in every case, have relatively new histories of 
you know, democracy. I mean, this is these these are these are ideas that have you know relatively shallowly rooted in many places. Um, uh, that in the case of somewhere like Cambodia, were basically imported from the outside. In other countries, you have sort of liberal traditions coexisting with streams of nationalism that sometimes contain illiberal elements. Um, you know, uh, and, and I think that it, the picture is a lot more complicated. I think that we often underestimate in the West just how exceptional and contingent the achievement of liberal, you know, consolidated liberal democracy really is. And we, we, we almost assume that it's some, in some sort of way a resting default of humanity when in actual fact, I think history suggests the opposite, that it came about in very unique historical circumstances in Europe and North America um, and has you know, remained you know, in a fragile state even there. And that you know, uh, you know, nations in Southeast Asia or other parts of the global South, particularly nations that were colonized and exploited for decades by Western powers, um, you know, are dealing with a, you know, an entirely different set of um, political, economic, social, and of course, cultural factors um, and backgrounds that, you know, that make, you know, the consolidation of liberal democracy, uh, you know, a, a significant challenge. Um, I also think there's a tendency in the West, particularly in the United States, to define, define democracy very narrowly in political terms, um, when in fact, you know, there is a, you know, large tradition on the left wing of politics that, that views economic equality as, you know, just as important for, you know, meaningful freedom in people's lives. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of different, you know, I think there's a certain poverty in how we define democracy very often, uh, you know, this very narrowly democratic sense. And that makes it very hard to interpret something like Duterte in the Philippines, you know, why someone like him would be elected and why there'd be such a, you know, a, a large reservoir of appeal for someone with such authoritarian tendencies. Um, you know, but the fact that, you know, um, uh, Philippine democracy really wasn't working for a large proportion of the population, um, you know, has to be taken into consideration um, as well. And economic inequality has a lot to do with that. So, you know, I think that, you know, the, the situation is a lot more complicated. I think that, um, you know, China's definitely had a negative impact. Um, I think that if you have a, a superpower that's proclaiming democratic principles like the United States is, and of course, the United States often acts in a very different way in practice, but if you have a you know a superpower proclaiming those principles, that tends to kind of you know give a bit of a tailwind to um, you know people advocating democracy domestically. But and I think the same is true of China advocating a much more sovereigntist perspective, much more hostile to you know um, you know international norms of human rights and so forth. But I do think that ultimately you know it, it the conditions depends largely, you know, democratization depends largely on domestic conditions. Um, and that is where we need to seek answers for the recent decline in, you know, liberal democratic values in Southeast Asia over the past decade. All right. Thank you so much, Sebastian. It was a great conversation with you. And uh, that's our conversation on assessing the Southeast Asia China relationship. And uh, thank you once again, Sebastian. Thanks, Dodo. It was a pleasure. Hopefully we can do it again. Right. And the listeners, thank you so much for, for tuning in uh, to this podcast interview. And uh, please follow and, you know, keep reading what uh, Sebastian is doing. Uh, he is a journalist and also the author of some great books on Southeast Asia and, of course, a Southeast Asian expert. And uh, hope we can talk again, Sebastian, in the future. Sounds good. Speak to you soon. Right. Goodbye. All right. Bye bye.